If you eat meat, be it kosher or not, you might be curious to learn where it comes from. I was. And hey, if you don't eat meat, I still think you'll find it fascinating. So, this episode of The Kibitz, the third in my three-part series about food, is all about meat. Look, I love animals. I have a dog named Whiskey who is by far the cutest dog ever. I love watching animal videos on YouTube as much as the next person. But I also really love eating meat. And like many, I, I struggle with that conflict. When I was little, I would go trout fishing with my grandfather and we'd come home and gut the fish and, and then my brother or my parents would cook them up. My dad owned a barbecue restaurant when I was growing up and, and I worked there for a little while and, and I've cooked in a few restaurants as well, so I'm not under any illusions about what meat is. But like any good Jew, I, I worry about the meat that we're all eating. And I'm certainly not the first to sound an alarm bell that the way we're raising and killing food is, is not only bad for the animals, it's bad for us. I mean, antibiotics, growth hormones, I mean, should we even be able to buy an entire rotisserie chicken for $4.99? Sure, they're delicious, but what are we really eating? I wondered, what's the Jewish angle on this? As Jonathan Safran Foer writes in his book, Eating Animals, quote, As I was taught them, in Hebrew school and at home, the Jewish dietary laws were devised as a compromise. If humans absolutely must eat animals, we should do so humanely, with respect for the other creatures in the world, and with humility. Don't subject the animals you eat to unnecessary suffering, either in their lives or in their slaughter. It's a way of thinking that made me proud to be Jewish as a child, and that continues to make me proud." End quote. So Jews are typically taught that animals shouldn't suffer, but how do we define that suffering exactly? Are there any methods of raising and killing animals for food that can be considered humane? The central question of this episode is whether or not kosher slaughter, specifically kosher slaughter, is a more humane way of killing animals for food. Should we feel better for choosing kosher meat over non-kosher? I should note, I don't even keep kosher, but if I'm buying, say, some chicken thighs to grill or braise, I tend to choose kosher organic chicken when it's an option because I think it means it's more humanely raised and killed. But what does that designation guarantee, if anything? I decided to find out. I went to a kosher beef slaughterhouse, one of the few remaining operations in the L.A. area, and got a tour. I've spared you every detail of what I saw, but it's still a pretty comprehensive inside look at how an animal goes from walking around to a cryovac package in your grocer's refrigerator all in a matter of minutes. I also spoke with a kosher slaughterer who's working with the Jewish Initiative for Animals to improve animal welfare in the kosher sector. And I talked to the founder of Cole Foods, the only purveyor of kosher American grass-fed beef in the United States. So, maybe go fix yourself a salad and get ready for this episode of The Kibitz. We'll start with my tour of Teva Foods in Vernon, California. First, I met the man who agreed to give me a tour of the facility. Uh, my name is Ilan Parente, and I'm the managing partner of Teva Meats, LLC. We are a glad kosher 
beef processor based out of Vernon, California. Uh, you're currently uh, standing at Manning Beef, which is USDA Establishment 934. If, if you look around you, it's uh, still somewhat rural, interestingly enough. We're just yeah. about 20 minutes out of downtown L.A. There's still strawberry fields around here, some orchards to my knowledge, etc. But uh, this is one of the last remaining such facilities in Los Angeles County, which makes it really unique. Uh, most of these slaughter facilities have become uh, huge, large multinational corporate behemoths, and this is one of the last remaining privately owned such facilities. Uh, we get our services basically provided by this facility to shecht or slaughter our cattle here. We also then further process them here, meaning we go ahead and take that carcass and break it into a box beef. Where does that beef end up? Uh, throughout the country. We okay. literally ship, I believe currently this beef ends up in 48 uh, states. The glot kosher beef ends up strictly under the Teva label. Uh, the byproduct, which is obviously our non-kosher product, ends up under multiple labels, but uh, essentially a premium cuts is our brand in okay. a non-kosher world. It gets cut for major nationals, um, Trader Joe's, the Kroger Group, etc. I asked Alon if there was anything different about his cattle as opposed to what we would find at a more industrial slaughterhouse. Our cattle is exclusively antibiotic-free and hormone-free from birth. It is also exclusively Angus. Okay. We also are the only kosher processor who's certified as a CAB vendor, CAB standing for Certified Angus Beef. I assume this is the rabbi that dis he sort of watches over the, uh, the I'll process? I'll introduce you all okay. to Rabbi Yossi Miller. Rabbi Yossi Miller is the son of Rabbi Duvid Miller, who happens to be our Rava Machshir. He's our certifying rabbi. I'm already here five, six years, and from one the from when the first cow gets into the place over here, we always have rabbis, more than one person, to approve and to make sure that everything goes the way it needs to be in the kosher world. Okay. And whatever doesn't get to that level becomes non-kosher. About 25 to 50 percent of the daily slaughter qualifies as kosher. If any of the rabbis don't approve it, it'll get sold on the non-kosher or trafe market. I asked Rabbi Miller if he'd always planned on being a kosher certifier like his father. No, I never was thinking that this is going to fall on my shoulders. <laughs> but since even today, I study a lot. When I was younger, I studied like, uh, I would say from 10 to 15 hours a day. And one of the things that I studied was kosher. And then this thing came up here and they needed someone to be on top of everything and guide the people and help out is I volunteer to do it. Um, all right, well, uh, should we take a tour? Yeah, by all means. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. We began in a small animal pen area where the cattle had been offloaded and was being hosed off in preparation for the slaughter. On a daily basis, an average of 200 head. Okay. Uh, most of the larger nationals are processing well over 5,000 a day. Wow. If you look at the uh, corral area itself, notice that the cement essentially is pretty rough in here, okay? And the design allows these animals to have sure footing to make sure that they don't slip or feel like they're in an ice ring. Okay? Yeah. So they got very solid stepping. 
in addition to that, as the animals basically are headed into the kill floor, if you look at the structure itself, it's a circular structure. And the idea itself is these animals will follow each other and without having any vocalization, will step onto the kill floor. Okay. It's a uh, design by Dr. Temple Grandin. Oh, so Temple Grandin was, has Absolutely. been here. Absolutely. Yeah. He has been here. Yeah. And the facility has third-party audits that come in on an annual basis and verifies that the animals are handled, handled humanely. Uh, notice no hot shots being used here. Really, yeah. real easy, quiet environment for them. If you're not familiar with Dr. Temple Grandin, she's a designer of livestock handling facilities and a professor of animal science at Colorado State University. She's devoted much of her life to designing systems to help reduce stress on animals during handling as they approach the slaughter. We're climbing up a ladder. So if you notice the circular, basically, runway here. Yeah. These animals will just follow each other. Okay. Okay and head into the uh, slaughter floor itself. Right. Oh, okay, wow. We're standing above them right now. So they, they, there's sort of a separating gate at each, every about 20 feet maybe? Each two, three head basically gets segregated into their own compartment. They yeah. basically just follow each other. Okay. At this point, I was led inside. I put on a Tyvek suit, a face mask, and a hard hat and washed my hands. My boots were sanitized by walking through a foam puddle of sanitizer. I was, at this point, pretty nervous. You'll hear several points throughout the next section where all I can say is, wow. I really was rendered speechless by what I saw. Not that I didn't know what I was getting into or, or was seeing something unexpected or unexpectedly cruel. It was just the sheer number and variety of cattle parts all moving past me in this strange, synchronized automation it left me kind of overwhelmed. We're going to step onto the kill floor. Okay. Uh, I need you to basically single file. Okay. Keep in mind a lot of action there. Yeah. Okay, guys with knives in their hands, etc. So I need you to keep your hands basically close to your body. Okay. Okay? Okay. I'm, uh... Wow. This is Rabbi Dove Berg, okay, he's our slaughter guy, and they'll work essentially 45 minutes at a time, because we like for them to have that sensitivity. Notice he just went ahead and cut one animal, and he'll run his fingernail across the knife to make sure that that knife is free of any imperfection. And the example that I like to give folks about kosher slaughter, which is a ritual slaughter, is Essentially, if you're sitting at your desk and you're flipping through paper and you get yourself a paper cut, you don't realize you cut yourself till something enters that cut. Same idea here. Notice these animals are not vocalizing at all. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't entirely convinced by this. I got what he was saying, but I'm pretty certain I feel it when I get a paper cut. The rabbi is going to wash the neck on this side. The employee is going to wash the neck on the other side. The idea is essentially we do not want any type of mud or anything to inflict essentially any pain to that animal simply because, again, if it can't feel the cut, okay, it's a painless process for them. Notice the neck is stretched. It is washed. You'll feel. 
And there he goes. And he makes the cut. The whole process typically takes anywhere from five to seven seconds. Okay? Notice the animal itself. Okay? Wow. It loses sensitivity completely at about 17 seconds. Amazing. And so, yeah, the... Wow. And we call it kosher slaughter. We don't call it knocking, which is the way they do it in non-kosher world. Right. In, in, that, in the non-kosher world, they'll send a steel sort of tip through its head? The steel bolt basically goes through the animal's head. Right. It renders it insensitive. However, it's not called a kill. Right. Okay? We, what we do here is we find it to be quite a bit more humane. Notice the limp tongue on that animal. Yeah. Okay? It's... Yeah. Uh, I can't even. <laughs> Words are failing me here. This moment was particularly tough. After its neck was cut swiftly and cleanly by the rabbi, the animal was hoisted into the air by one leg. I could still see it twitching. Elan noticed my reaction. Okay, you're looking at reflexes essentially. Okay. The animal is hoisted at this point. Okay, it goes up on the rail and the dress process starts. Yeah. Okay, again, notice Rabbi Burke at this point is making sure that his knife is free of any imperfections. And this happens between each and every animal. Wow, okay. Okay, so we got to keep the sum of the parts together. The way we do that is by tagging it and having multiple parts of that number basically appear on that for that animal. Okay. Okay. And so notice now the head is free of a hide. Yeah. It gets removed and goes onto the head station. Okay. Where it'll go through USDA inspection and then will be parted out. Did they use the hides for? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Nothing gets thrown away. Yeah. So as you sit in your car today and you're sitting on that nice leather seat, yeah. it's typically a beef hide that's used for that. Okay. At this point, the animal is gradually disassembled at various stations. There's a rabbi who takes a look at the lungs of each animal to see if it qualifies for kosher. And that's the rabbi right there in the, the sort of yep. hefty bag? That's okay. the rabbi. Yeah. And so what, if he, what, what's he looking for in the lungs? He is looking for that lung to be free of any adhesions. Notice that conical device over there with the uh, teeth on it. Okay. He'll go ahead and basically put the lung on it and inflate it. And very much like checking a flat tire on a bicycle. He'll inflate it with air and then we'll run water over it to make sure that there are no imperfections on that lung, no holes on that lung. Okay. If that lung has imperfections, bubbles will basically come out, okay? And that tells them that that animal will not qualify for our black kosher program. Okay. He does what we call the decapnim, uh, which is the uh, internal check. And the reason he does that is we want to make sure that prior to the lung being pulled out, that there are no adhesions, okay? Because it may be left on the inside and you'd never be aware of it. Right. So notice the rabbi inflating the uh, lung right now. Oh, wow, that's the lung. That's, that's the lung. crazy. The lung was inflated and looked like a giant translucent balloon. Okay. If he finds something, he'll hit the water. 
and he's looking for bubbles. Right. He'll give his helper the uh, thumbs up or thumbs down. In this case, that animal is kosher. Okay. So the rabbi goes ahead and stamps it as kosher. Right. Okay. Notice only the forequarter qualifies for our kosher program. Although only the four quarters of the cattle are considered eligible for kosher, the rest of the meat and body parts are still sold off to other markets. The intestines will become natural casings for things like sausages. You got your sweetbreads, tongues, tripe, cheeks, everything. We headed into the storage coolers where the sides of beef are chilled. The kosher sides are separated from the non-kosher. And so they all have the, the markings on them. Is that... That's that's, that's, that's a kosher carcass. That's a non-kosher carcass. I see. Okay. Okay. Not every animal qualifies for a kosher program. Then the sides of beef are split into the parts we buy as consumers. Here, I was surprised at just how many laborers were working on the line cutting up the carcass. And there are about, uh, wow, 50-some-odd butchers who work in this particular room. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Antonio here. Uh, works the uh, four quarters on the bandsaw. Uh-huh. And Pablo over there is going to drop the hind quarters. And each table basically gets to deal with a different cut of meat. Uh, they've been doing it for just a few years. I'm being funny about it. Uh, <laughs> these guys have been here for 20 to 30 years. Wow. Okay. They'll push basically these cuts of meat down the table. And each boner. Yeah, he said boner. Sorry, I'm really just attempting to find some humor in all of this. We'll go ahead and grab a piece, and they'll do the same thing day in, day out, and we'll go ahead and process it. Wow. At this point, a USDA inspector inspects the meat, and it's bagged, cryovacked, weighed, boxed, and shipped out around the country. So all these boxes have different weights on them. They say steamship round or... You know, round flats, USD choice. Okay. And we'll roll out now to a loading dock where trucks will be waiting for them and right. they go into market. While it was a kosher slaughtering day, the day I visited wasn't a kosher butchering day. So the rabbi explained how the kosher butchering process differs from what I saw. It's two types of things that's not permissible for kosher. Okay. There's fats, there's some fats and some blood vessels, some veins and arteries. And all that, every piece of meat that touches that table is checked if it was by, removed by the workers of the facility. The workers of the facility, they were trained by the manaka that he only ex- is the inspection, he only does the inspection if it was done the way it needs to be to be kosher. There's pieces that they take out and that goes for non-kosher. And then they have to do a thing that's called soaking and salting to get out the extra blood that's in the meat. And that helps the meat to be much more healthier and stay longer, have a longer shelf life. Yeah. Because all the bacteria that's in the blood gets removed when you do that process. Okay. Every animal that comes through this facility certain days of the week will go through a ritual slaughter. I see. So if we do it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday for kosher, they also have a halal slaughter here, okay, for our Muslim friends that happens on Thursday. Oh, okay. And how is that process different? Uh, it's quite different. Essentially, uh, the animal still gets ritually slaughtered, meaning by a human being and a knife. However, that's where it stops. Whereas for kosher, 
we have quite a few other checks. It's amazing how quickly you can see it going from the live animal to what looks like a steak inside so a, a package. Box beef yeah. product. Correct. Fascinating. We finished up back outside where I asked why they didn't process organic beef. If you're looking for truly an organic piece of meat, you'll typically fi find organic ground beef. You don't find what we call primals. Okay. Why and is that? Uh, most of the organic product that is ground in this country is sourced from dairy cows, from organic dairies, that obviously are no longer in their prime. Yeah. So... And so it's not going to produce beef that's... That's of quality to throw on your grill or cook. Right. But that's interesting. They'll bone it out and throw it into grinds and you'll get yourself some organic ground beef that comes out of predominantly dairies. Gotcha. Or is imported from Australia or Uruguay or somewhere else. Okay. It just does not produce, in our opinion, a quality beef. Yeah. Not to say that there aren't quality organic producers out there. But the consistency and the volume that we require just doesn't exist on a consistent basis. Yeah. Thank you so much for My pleasure. giving me a tour around here. It's been My pleasure. incredible. The craziest thing about this inside look at a kosher slaughterhouse for me was this moment towards the end of the tour when I looked down and I noticed this side of beef, even though I had just witnessed in excruciating detail how a giant living animal got to this point. What I looked down and saw was a fresh, beautiful-looking steak. I thought, eh, it looks pretty tasty. Does that make me a horrible person? Probably. I don't know. I'd like to think that at least knowing where our meat comes from is at least a step closer to the right direction. And I have to say I was really impressed with the care that Ilan and his crew seem to take with each animal. But, you know, it's still an animal. And in fact, oddly enough, I was at a barbecue a week later, and a friend of mine showed up with a Teva steak from Trader Joe's, and I looked down and I thought, that could have been the animal I saw get slaughtered a week ago. And I have to say, it was pretty damn good. When I started researching online the question of animal welfare as it relates to kosher meat, I quickly found this guy and his blog, The Kosher Omnivore's Quest. Well, my name is Yadidia Greenberg, and I am the kosher meat and animal welfare specialist at the Jewish Initiative for Animals. Several years ago, he decided to only eat meat that he had killed himself. So, he became a certified kosher slaughterer, or shoket. Recently, he joined Jiffa. Right now, I, my central role within this new initiative called the Jewish Initiative for Animals, or Jiffa for short, is to, is to increase popularity and availability of higher welfare kosher meat. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that most kosher meat particularly chicken, is not humanely raised. Of course, that does depend on your definition of humanely. Today, um, pretty much any chicken you buy in stores should be, you know, ninety-nine over 99.9% .9 of all chickens have been um, genetically modified through breeding to grow very fast, to have very large breasts. And this is 
kind of the worst animal welfare problem in the world. It's it's generally considered one of the worst ones, and it's also one of the least known animal welfare problems in the world. And we kind of recognize this as being the cutting edge of of uh, animal welfare is genetic welfare. Well, people usually think about free range or getting animals out of cages. Um, we really see the real cutting edge being the genetic welfare. And you're now starting to see that with Whole Foods that just came out and said they're going to start um, they're going to start using slower growing poultry. So one of the big things that they started to do when they started to hybridize poultry, which is that kind of genetic modification through breeding that they were doing, mm-hmm. is they started to create poultry that grew three times faster now than it used to. That's where heritage chickens come in. They're like the heirloom tomatoes of chicken. So a heritage chicken is a chicken that genetic line is maintained since before the 1950s when chickens were bred to live long, outdoor, productive lives, to be healthy, to have healthy immune systems, to be very fertile. And these are really tasty chickens. They're very healthy and they're able to live very happy and productive lives. But that industry has been almost completely destroyed by the modern day broiler industry with the hybridization. In the kosher world, heritage chicken is not available at all. In the non-kosher world, heritage chickens are mostly available thanks to a guy named Frank Reese. He's profiled in Jonathan Saffron Four's book, Eating Animals. Yadidia is working to get his chickens to the kosher market. So I was curious how Yadidia got into kosher slaughter. I grew up on a kibbutz in Israel where we had farm animals, and I grew up in, with a very close relationship to them, and, um, and I really wanted to face this issue. I didn't, I didn't want to leave it forever. And it was when I started to become religious um, and started getting into Judaism at age 20, um, the moment I decided to keep kosher, to stop eating non-kosher animals, I also made a decision that within several years, I was going to face this issue about factory farming and animals being mistreated. In a previous episode of The Kibbutz, uh, the Kasher brothers said this about kosher law. This is Moshe Kasher. And we haven't even discussed the fact that Judaism, uh, kosher laws was one of the first, if not the first, systems of animal slaughter that involved uh, avoidance of unnecessary cruelty to the animal, which is like a powerful and profound thing. Whether or not that's always played out in the slaughterhouses of kosher uh, butchers is uh, immaterial. I mean, that's a very powerful thing that that's even an ethic that says you shouldn't cause undue suffering to these animals. As Moshe is saying, it hints at a, a, a bigger question of whether we should be eating animals altogether. But according to Yadidia, there's a law called Tzarbalei Chaim, which um, basically says you cannot cause undue suffering, unnecessary suffering to animals. There's Then there's the laws of kosher, kosher slaughter, kosher processing. Okay. Now... From everything that I've seen in the literature, those laws are talked about in separate in, in separate places. Okay. So I would say that, um, you know, these modern day industrial slaughterhouses, they're not breaking kosher law by using factory farms. They're still kosher as long as they're processing everything according to the law. Now, um, the thing is, it doesn't always mean that what they're doing is humane. And I think that's a problem. Um, I would say it's a problem of Tsar Chaim, not of kosher. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Like so many aspects of Judaism, 
or also much like the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the meaning or intent of the phrase undue cruelty to animals is a little vague. Kosher slaughter can be more or less humane. Uh, everything depends on a lot of factors, and a lot of it is just uh, people's opinions on it and people's methodologies. Um, you know, nobody really knows what happen- what's happening to an animal when it dies. But um, the most important thing is that uh, I believe that it can be humane if it's done correctly. I believe that other forms of slaughter can be humane when they're done correctly. I would say that it is better that we should, you know, that we should be strict on this and that there's a lot of reasons why we should be strict on this because it's generally the right thing to do. And um, I don't think that, you know, when we made up these laws, when these laws were, were, you know, were created about Sabah Chaim, that really they would have thought that, uh, you know, the rabbis would have thought that what they're doing today on factory farms is okay or what they're doing the chickens today is okay. So in my mind, I would say this goes against those laws and it's better for us to, you know, not have this meat on the kosher market. But, you know, that's more of a personal kind of opinion. And uh, I wouldn't say it's, a, you know, that's not a halachic fact. It makes you wonder what, if anything, the kosher stamp on a piece of meat actually guarantees you know that people that want to ask them to guarantee animal welfare it's almost for in my mind a silly thing to ask them to do because they are not a um these are not animal welfare organizations now it still would be nice if you know um they took that into account more i'm not going to require that of them myself but i don't i would like for anybody to be taking animal welfare into account more that's just because i'm really invested in this issue and i think it's an important one but i don't think that's required of them yeah So, to be clear, a kosher designation means literally nothing about how the animal was raised. So, where can one find humanely raised kosher meat? I'm not just helping increase popularity, I'm helping increase availability, because the availability is just so stretched. The kosher grass-fed beef, uh, Cole Foods is the only one that's doing kosher American grass-fed beef in the country. Now, they're having, you know, that's a very difficult thing to do. There's a lot of supply chain issues in the grass-fed beef industry. What goes on on a farm doesn't really play in, you know, what kosher is. So it really starts at the slaughterhouse. That's Devorah Kimmelman-Block, who started Cole Foods, which stands for Kosher Organic Local, back in 2007. Cole Foods is um, 100% grass-fed, kosher, online meat company. She started with a simple website and sold meat to her friends and family and asked people to email her orders. Soon she got emails from people all over the country and started buying clubs, online ordering, and shipping via FedEx. They also have kosher lamb, chicken, turkey, duck, and wild-caught Alaskan sockeye salmon. We're the only provider of domestic grass-fed meat to the country, kosher meat to the country. She says she started coal because she wanted to get a farmer's market type of meat that was kosher. And what I meant by that was to um, be able to know your farmer, be able to sort of the transparency to know exactly what you're getting, Um, you know, to be assured of how it was, the animals were raised, that it was done in a humane way. 
um, to make sure it didn't have any hormones or antibiotics in it. Where can we find out more about humanely raised poultry? So one kind of thing that I would that I would tell people about is buyingpoultry.com. And that's a farm forward uh, initiative. Okay. And that's a website that really helps people find higher welfare poultry. And it's um, in the poultry on that site gets a, uh, a rate all the way from F to A. Okay. And everything's based on third party certification. So nothing gets on there without some kind of, uh, some kind of certification um, that's verifying these standards. And at the highest level, you're talking about heritage poultry. Yeah. All right. And then you have levels going down from there. So um, that's a great tool for people to use in order to find higher welfare poultry. Right okay. Now. That's great. eggs, chicken, and turkey. I don't know if this happens to you, but I am always confused when I go to buy eggs. There's, there's so many varieties and so many different labels, pasture-raised, organic, free-range, cage-free. Like, uh, I asked Yadidia to help clarify some of the confusion. There, you know, there's a humane, certified humane certification, and they have three levels. They have a, they have a normal cage-free certification, they have a free-range certification, and they have a pasture-raised certification. Now, the pasture-raised certification, they certify that each animal has 108 square feet of land on the farm. All right? So that is a really meaningful animal welfare certification. Yeah. So you just want to look for that. Uh, you want to look for the certified humane. If you're getting pasture-raised eggs, they require that pasture-raised eggs meet those standards. Any pasture-raised eggs under the certified humane label have to meet that standard. Any free-range eggs need to meet the free-range standard, hmm. and the cage-free eggs need to meet the cage-free standard. But so if you're look, you know, if you if you're looking for a better egg, that's something that really does is meaningful. Is it perfect? No, I'm not going to say it's perfect. Those eggs aren't perfect, but they are meaningfully much better. So, you know, if you're really interested in getting higher welfare products on the kosher market, you want to go to the website, go to com and sign up for the mailing list. That's just the number one simplest and easy thing that you can do. Thank you so much. And it sounds like so we should send people to ji4a.org and uh, buyingpoultry.com is another mm-hmm. place. And you can sign uh, up for the mailing list on ji4a.org. Yeah. Um, great. Well, thank you so much for uh, stopping by the kibitz. Thank you very much. All right, that is all for this episode of The Kibitz. Thanks so much for listening. I know it was a kind of a crazy episode, as it was for me to make it. But if you liked it, please rate and review us on iTunes. Tell your friends, post it on Facebook, tweet it, shout it over the rooftops. And seriously, uh, I'd love to hear what you thought. Send feedback to kibitzpod at gmail.com or tweet us at kibitzpod. And please give us a like on Facebook. And you can follow me on Twitter at here. I would like to thank our guests, Ilan Parente and Rabbi Yosef Miller of Teva Foods and Yadidia Greenberg of the Jewish Initiative for Animals, which you can find out more about at jewishinitiativeforanimals.org. Also, Devorah Kimmelman Block of Cole Foods. Their website is kolfoods.com, Cole Foods. Check them out. This episode was produced and edited by me, Dan Crane, with help from Adam Sachs, Sarah DeLeo, and David Jargowski. Additional engineering by Brett Morris. Special thanks to David Katz-Nelson, Earwolf, and as always, Reboot. The Kibitz is sponsored by the Emanuel J. Friedman Philanthropies. All music was made by me, and our main theme music is courtesy of my old band, Nunon Plus. As my great-grandmother used to say, that's the way it is in a small town with a large population. Thanks for listening to The Kibitz.